out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Jim, you make it all sound very exciting. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Again, bringing you the finest in indie pop. As you know, well, you might not actually. I always like a special guest and um, have been tracking down indie bands for the last three years. This is one that came a bit after that glorious decade that was the 80s. This is Salad, uh, an interview I did at the end of 2018, in fact, with the lead singer, Marie van der Flute. I hope I pronounced that right. Anyway, this is the interview. It is stunningly interesting. Um, and after a bit of chat and just usual little, you know, getting to know you, so to speak, um, we went into that subject that was Britpop and the fact that Salad were right there just before it all exploded. Anyway, this is it. Enjoy. Make notes. I will test you at the end. Probably. We were there just before. I mean, well, let's say we we started um, we started as the Merry Babes in the late eighties, and that was just Paul and I. Um, we were art school kids, you know, classic story. We we went out with each other. Um, I he'd already been doing music, um, you know, writing poetry and putting them to music, and I thought that was rather fascinating. He fascinated me. It's always the it's a good it's a good um you know it's it's good um chick bait yes well yes well, that's, that's... <laughs> being a performer being a you know having a guitar and being a performer anyway um and that was all late 80s and then we changed um we became you know uh, an electric band and we changed to salad i think it was 92 so then we were actively gigging as an indie band um and I think back then we didn't think indie meant independent. We just, it was kind of a sound, wasn't it? Guitar, a bit different, you know, taking a few risks here and there, playing at the Bull and Gate in London. Um, <laughs> yes. town. It was just, you know, indie was sweaty. Indie was slightly under rehearsed. Uh, indie was don't give a, you know, don't give a yes. shit. Um, and, um, yeah, so we were, and I think we had, we got our label, our record deal in 93, and we released our first single through Island Red in 94, but we were, I think we released our first single on our own label in 93. Yes. But Paul is the one who knows all the, you know, the dates backwards and upwards and inside out. And God, he, yes, he probably can remember the, look, reading the contract or vaguely reading it or signing well, it. He also, he also is a is a gentleman that can't help but always throws a Beatles reference in every single conversation you have about anything at all, even if it's not about music. There's always a Beatles reference. I mean, he knows, you know, he, you know, he has it all going on in his head. He, he must be having a busy time because they've just released the White Album with 107 tracks of all <laughs> oh, these kind of... Actually, he hasn't said. Maybe we'll have to club together and give that to him for Christmas. Yeah. Yes, 107. I mean, there's a lot of demos in there and um, it's for, it's definitely for the fan. So did it take a while to get the sound ready? Because doing this, having done this show for quite a while, most bands have a few years. Mostly, this is in the 80s, I suppose, were being unemployed or doing part-time jobs and and making music as their passion and then John Peel this is often the narrative John Peel picks it up play, plays it and it gives them that kind of leg up or, or the stepping stone to the session and then like oh blimey we, we might make an album 
And though dreamt of that during those kind of days of rehearsing, didn't realise this is kind of the narrative that happened. So I just wondered if you got your sound together and started to make something that appealed to more than just your friends and family and anybody else <laughs> you could emotionally blackmail to see you live. Yeah. It did take a few years, and, and as with anything, there were a few false starts, but it was what really you know, drove us was Paul and I seemed to have this unrelentless belief in ourselves, the belief in that we had something special, <laughs> something unique um, to give, and uh, we just kept on and on. We didn't hear all the, anything that was critical of us or negative. We just we just bashed it aside, you know, we literally just went, we were just on a path to we're brilliant and literally just knocking other people aside if they, if they didn't understand it. Really, it was a matter of, oh, you just don't understand us. And that's how we got our sound together. And it wasn't a conscious thing at all, like you were saying about the other bands. It just evolved and kept evolving and only kept evolving because we were so obstinate and stubborn. Um, and, um, we were very lucky. I was very lucky. I did have a job on the side, but it was a very well-paid job. It was not, you know, our stepping stone was incredibly uncool. Um, I was a fashion model and then I became a TV presenter for MTV. And all, all these were just jobs to me while I was doing this indie music with Paul. And unfortunately, um, our stepping stone being, you know, be, being half half of it unseen to the public eye was the grind the hard graft of, of just playing live all the time and the other half the public half was um i was on tv and i was fashion model and earning good money and that was just you know who the hell does she think she is <laughs> um and um so but we still got a deal um, and we did get a lot of love from melody maker from people who did get it and who didn't care about what my job my part-time job was um so yeah very different very different path it's a very different path of those those kind of like kind of scratchy little sort of flexi discs so when you were growing up was music something that was a massive part of your life that you you sort of religiously listened to and and all that malarkey um I would say it wasn't a massive part of my life. What was a big part of my life was um, sort of the hippie movement. My, my parents um, were, this was sort of free love in the 60s. And my dad was a, 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 a famous actor in Holland. My mom was a, you know, a desirable woman on his arm. And uh, I, I, um, I was... Um, um, what's the word, you know, when you get, I was exposed to Pink Floyd and the Beatles and things like that um, through through my dad's um, record collection. Yes. And there were parties in the house. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and there'd be a drummer in the front room and I'd go to sleep in the big blanket chest, you know, and um, obviously there was a lot of marijuana and things like that. And this is the sort of early 70s. Um, and so, and my dad being an actor, I, I grew up, really just um, in a household that didn't uh, reflect, um, you know, working hours and things like that. You know, I had a nanny and things like that. Again, not the path that you would expect. You know, um, I, I, um, I had music lessons, I had piano lessons, but didn't really want to practice. And it was only when um, the when at school we started doing a project with um, Ravel's um, Bolero that uh, my ears pricked up and we had to sort of draw what the music 
um, you know, meant to express the music and drawings and ideas. And I, I remember saying, I, I see what I see is is a a big um, Western uh, landscape in America, and a few horses come round the edge of the mountain as the music begins, and then as the music develops, more and more of the infantry comes round, you know, the edge of the mountain, and the whole army walks through. And the, and and the the teacher said, Yeah, that's okay, but why not a Spanish dancer in a restaurant, you know, on the table? And I was like, because that's the idea that you gave us all as an example. <laughs> I, I want to then repeat that. So that was my first feeling of, huh, I thought my idea was quite good, but you didn't like it. Well, I don't care, you know. Um, and then my first obsession with music became, um, uh, started with Queen's News of the World. That was uh, we are the champions was my first sort of love of music and i i have this photograph of me as a mousy grumpy 12 year old listening to um with my dad's headphones on listening to news in the world and not understanding because i, I didn't speak english oh, so yes. it's still one of my favorite records because that it speaks to me in terms of it takes me back to that innocence you know of uh, the beautiful songs on that record and you everyone you speak to will have a different queen record that is their favorite because that's the one how that is the record with which they discovered queen you know yes well it's interesting so, i think i think my brother actually had that news of the world album and that seemed to be the one that had um yes quite a lot of those anthems on when i because I, I, was, I was i was probably about sort of 14 15 at the time when that sort of appeared in the house Mm. So that's my, I, I was really more, so in answer to your question, was I obsessed about music? No, I was more brought up in a, in a performing family and I was obsessed about being a performer of some sort. Yes. And also, obviously, it's the B word, isn't it? It sounded like a very bohemian time where, because having sort of spoke to quite a few people who ha who've had those childhoods, which I used to slightly envy, think, God, my parents were just very sort of, working class and they just worked a lot and then we just kind of just looking back were vaguely poor but then I realized the the bohemian lifestyle does have some highs but some terrible lows as well so you managed you managed personally to survive the lows as well well the lows um I only really came to realize they were lows when I was much older my, my own personal low was that at the age of 12 my mom left and came to England to be with her new boyfriend um and um, so my dad was devastated and, and uh, you know, um, only after four years of being with my dad in Holland did I then get um, taken. My mum brought me to England, which is why I am in England, um, and put in boarding school. So, again, it sounds very posh and lovely, but overall there's a lot of neglect there. Um, and um, that's what I had to deal with, you know. Um, and again, uh, I lost my dad in terms of, you know, I haven't lived in the same country as my dad since I was 12. And, and there was a massive, massive gap in my life. And instead, I had my stepdad who, you know, bless him. I never got on with, still don't. Um, so, you know, you know, psychologically, that is going to wreak havoc with a with a girl's mental health. You know, because I I look up to my dad and I I love him. And he, like he's still around. You know, and we're on very good terms. But you know, I definitely lost him as a father figure. So again, first world problems. But you know. I would say those are the lows. Yes. Well, because having spoke to a few people who've had bohemian lifestyles, there was a sort of a lack of, uh, there was a lot of freedom, but they realised looking back too much freedom and too much kind of, there weren't enough boundaries and sort of 
people no say. Boundaries. I don't remember having boundaries. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Being a parent myself now, putting uh, in place boundaries for my son was something really alien to me because I don't remember ever having boundaries. Yes, but luckily you survived because there's quite a few people who you probably sort of have come across who had a similar, slightly similar childhood that so you think, oh dear, you know, they, you know the, the slight kind of casual drug taking from, from the age of, I don't know, 12 isn't good. Mm-hmm. By the age of 15, people have got serious kind of addiction problems. So you obviously yeah, managed I- to steer through that quite well. I was very lucky. I have very conscientious parents. Somehow, I suppose they they did do. They have done a very good job in terms of a responsibility that I take for my own life. And and it's the same as my dad has five children now, uh, three from his second marriage, and and uh, I have my older brother. And we're all really quite conscientious. How did that happen? And I have real difficulty dealing with English men, sorry, in general. They're not quite as conscientious as Dutch men, uh, Dutch people. Dutch people really do seem to um, take responsibility for their actions a lot more than than I find English. Yes. Well, good. Yes. Well, it's good good, good to be be aware of that, actually, isn't it? Because, yes, so... On the on the sort of keeping on back on the music front, which is you know it's fascinating hearing, hearing your other side to sort of the early years, but because most bands I didn't realise have the five year narrative, which is kind of get together, make a sound, do the single, then the album, and you know sometimes in that there's the John Peel you know play and John Peel session, but obviously in your case it wasn't, but you did the album, and that normally is good. The tour the touring is slightly tricky, and if anybody ever does America, that seems to finish them off. And then the second album is definitely one of those kind of moments where, um, yes, issues start to happen. And but you sort of managed to survive yeah, five it, years, but you got to did, six years instead. So what was your six, narrative? We get to six. I suppose we got signed in ninety three. We got dropped in ninety seven. So actually, <laughs> that's. Four years. Four years. And we we split up in ninety eight. So you, the narrative you just described is pretty much us as well. Our our hot moment was um, going on tour with Blur uh, around the UK in ninety three. You know that was our moment, and that's where a lot of people um, discovered us um, and and um, continued you know to support us throughout um, our time. And those are the people that have come back now to say, wow, the first time I saw you was on the Blur tour, you know. Um, our first album was, you know, we got the producer we wanted. You know, he was he produced the Breeders' the first album um, and Madder Rose. Um, and um, we got, you know, we were recording in Pink Floyd studio in um, Britannia Row in, in Islington. And, you know, everything was coming up roses. It really was. And then, and then at that point, because you're a young band, you start getting arrogant and you go, well, the first album did really well. The second one will do even better. We can take ages to make it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah. And then we lost our deal because they don't develop bands anymore. And, um, yeah, there you go. Yes. So with the <clears throat> the first album was Drink Me, wasn't it? Yes. The second album, the one you were talking about, is this the one that's titled Ice Cream? Yes. And, and that's the one where... Was was that whole process, you know, from what you were saying, the, the Drink Me experience, everything kind of the stars lined up. It was beautiful. The second album did was from from the beginning. Was that a tricky experience? I think we took a long time writing it because we were a bit lazy. Um, you know, I, I I have you know many memories of being at home just watching daytime TV when I should have been writing songs. Um, 
I think the at this point the press and radio uh, department had been taken in in house at Island Records instead of having independent people do that, and we were did have press by a, uh, we were at uh, Savage and Best, which were the indie darlings of they, they did press for everyone from menswear, elastica, suede, you know, um, and then we lost that because Island decided to take over the you know the promotional reins and they had an idea that they wanted us to be the new blondie but really sleeper were already the new blondie what were they thinking and they just didn't understand the direction we were going and they didn't understand what we wanted visually and you know guess what we didn't know what we wanted anymore either because there were so many cooks um so many corporate cooks and we just completely lost our way and thought we'll just continue being a bit weird and uh um, and even though our producer we're still working with now, and he's the drummer in our band, Donald Ross Skinner, we made some great music. Um, I still prefer, in fact, my, my favorite album is Singles Bar, which is the compilation, because that is so raw. Yes. And I think we've gone back to that sound with our new single, The Selfishness of Love. Um, however, I know someone who, I know a lot of people whose favorite album is Ice Cream, because that's how we, they discovered us. Yes. And then they're not so keen on Drink Me. Uh, exactly what I said about Queen and News of the World. You know, it's really the only album I know. <laughs> I'm not even bothered about any others because that's the one for me. So that's <laughs> that's what's happened to a lot of people with Salad and, and many bands. Um, I think Ice Cream, I personally, I think we were trying a bit too hard on Ice Cream. I think Drink Me, we were we were very lucky in the stars align and there's about, you know, I think 70% of it is really good and 30% of it is dubious. Um, and I think Singles Bar, Singles Bar was just shooting shooting um um without any you know shooting without with abandon or is it without abandon just just um reeling off exactly what we wanted and we we were strong and we had we had an idea of what we wanted to do and it just came about in the studio and it was just we were being ourselves we were we couldn't help but make the album that we made when we made um singles bar yeah and did you i mean it sounded like, you know, the first album, everybody was kind of, um, as they say in a cliche, you know, singing from the same hymn sheet and sort of had the same sort of direction. Was making the second album um, in 97, was that a little bit different in the sense of, was everyone still on the same plan or were people starting to want to do different things like a jazz odyssey or anything crazy like that? No, we were definitely on the same plan, but there were so many uh, outside um um, uh, people from the outside trying to have a say, our manager, our A and R person, and uh, it just didn't feel like our own little thing anymore. And um, we were still very keen, um, and we were actually quite heartbroken that it wasn't, you know, when it didn't go well. And when we started demoing for the album after Ice Cream. Uh, and throughout those sessions, we were actually dropped by Island. Um, some of those songs ended up on the Lost album, Volume 1. It's just something we released earlier this year. Um, and you can hear my anger on one of the songs uh, in the keyboard solo. It's a song called Cut and Cover. And, uh, God, we enjoyed that session so much in terms of creativity. We were really, you know, we had moved on from Ice Cream and we... We knew that what we had was something really special, but nobody got it. We were ahead of our time. Um, it just was the wrong time for us. But in the middle of the keyboard solo of of um, Cut and Cover, 
or rather at the end of the keyboard solo, I just bash the piano really hard because I'm so angry that we lost our deal. Um, it was a difficult time. They didn't see us. No. And those songs are on the Lost album and, and people love them. Because that's the other thing that people... And they're relevant. Yes. But the the one the other thing that um, I've, I've been slightly intrigued by is the sort of ownership and publishing deals that bands have. Did you manage to navigate that okay? And and with that particular compilation or collection, the Lost album, were they songs that you managed to keep ownership of? Yes, um, they are um, because a lot of them uh, were demoed after um, we um, uh, left Island Records. So there are songs and. Um, they didn't ever release any of the songs that we uh, demoed uh, in the time that we were with them. So they just belong to us. Um, we've got our publishing back anyway for all our songs, but the only thing we don't have back is ownership of the recordings um, of everything that we released through Island, which is daft. We will not own those for the lifetime of the songs i don't know what is a lifetime of the song is it 50 years yes something drastic like that actually and did you feel i mean because because obviously you know journalists and everybody like to pigeonhole things in that kind of there was indie there was dance there was grunge did you feel part of any scene during that uh brit pop period with you know people you know all the bands that came out on those kind of shine compilations and and sort of suddenly appearing on top of the pops we definitely were part, when we started out, it was sort of Voodoo Queens, Elastica, Echo Belly, Sleeper. It was girl-fronted indie bands. And, and that was a really good thing to have been part of. We're really lucky. So we didn't form a band with a girl fronting it on purpose, you know. But it helped with the column inches and it helped to be part of that. It was a really, it was a good force, you know. It, it moved us on. Um, and, um, you know, what still surprises me to this day that every single person in a band wants to do well. Every single person in the band is competitive, you know, even though how can you possibly be competitive with creativity, with art? It still baffles me. However, it'll always be there. So, you know, you want that. You want to be part of a movement. You want to be spoken about. So that was great. And then Britpop came along and of course, I'm Dutch. How could it, we possibly be Britpop? But we have been linked with it, and I don't have a problem with that at all. No. Not at all. It's wonderful. It's, it's, and, and, and we just played the Shine On Festival in November. Um, well, we're still in November at uh, Butlins in Minehead, and it was fantastic because the competition is no longer there. We all love each other. We all hang out with each other. We all want the best for each other. And uh, it's, a, it's a great and very soppy thing. <laughs> Yes, yeah. that's quite nice, actually. I, I sort of realised with a lot of people at the time, you know, because as a fan, you know, you expect everybody to be hanging out and enjoying each other's company. And that isn't the case. Everyone's in their little group and gang. And I've got the issues amongst the band and management and, and stuff. So they, they don't even have time to think about the other bands, even though, you know. I think at the beginning you did have, you know, the Smash Club where, you know, the Blurs and the Elasticas and everybody hung out, you know. Yes. Um, and they were all great mates. But now, nearly 30 years later or 25 years later, everybody's just much happier to see each other. And there isn't that, oh, my God, are they going to say a tricky comment or a bitchy comment? Everyone's just kind of happy to be alive and are slightly amazed they're still in a band playing the music that they played, you know, several decades ago. 
Yes, that's a, exactly that. Perfect. So <laughs> did you did you have a moment then in 1998 where you sat down and said, uh, to quote Jim Morrison, this is the end? Yeah, uh, it was a gig. We did our last gig at the Falcon in Camden. Uh, there was uh, there was you know a smattering of people there. We were lackluster on stage. We tried for a year after leaving Ireland to get a new deal to um, demo songs and try and get some funding together to make a new record. And the gig afterwards, I just went home and went, "That's it. I can't be bothered." And actually, Charlie, our guitarist, who joined us for live stuff uh, from '96, had the same idea. And um, and the two of us just said, "We're not doing this anymore. Life is too short." And actually, I wanted to do solo stuff, but I was deeply let down by my publishing company. They did sign me uh, uh, for solo stuff, but they paid no attention to me at all. Even though I had a a band called Cowboy Racer going. Um, and much later, my A&R man actually apologized to me for uh, for willful neglect because they were being taken by a, overtaken by a drinks company, you know, uh, ridiculous, Seagram or something like that. And then it was universal. So anyway, that was that. Yes. Yeah, very, and that, and, a very and, quick moment. When you know, you know. God, that sounds, it sounds both kind of, um, it sounds horrible and cruel, actually. And, and It was horrible. We were in debt, you know, we had big debts. And mentally, um, it didn't do some members of the band any favours. Others just moved on very quickly with stuff. Um, and I, I found myself saying to a member of the family, I don't know what to do. How can I get out of this mess? And they said, well, Marina, you're going to have to get a job. I went, a job? <laughs> what's a job and I suddenly thought yeah I'm gonna have to get a job and from then on my life changed because I became self-sufficient I found I learned a skill with which I can still earn money now and um actually it's the best thing that ever happened that's that's a that's a good moment actually so with the with with the band you know because there's this sort of like that's it you know this is the end I mean, when you sort of talk about things like debt, does it mean that the the, indiv- the members still have that responsibility or do you just sort of say, look, here's, here's the song, here's the stuff, you know, the record company will just have to whistle for it until another day? I'm not totally understanding your question. Oh, no, but, you know, when you said, you know, the band were, had debt, I just wondered, yeah. you, you know, do you just kind of literally walk away from that and say... No, well, we, had to, we had well, we had to... Um... We had a tax bill we had to pay. Uh, we owed money to a, a transport company for, um, uh, you know, a, a, a sleeper bus that we'd hired for a European tour. And it was, it wasn't, the debts weren't that great, but um, one of the band, you know, thought, you know, became very, very desperately worried about it all and, and, and wasn't teetering on the brink of, you know, desperate anxiety because of it. Um, and that's no fun. Um and uh, it's all solved now. But no, the record company didn't. The management, you know, we walked walked away from everything. We had to deal with it ourselves. And that's sobering. But that's not a unique story. It's the same. You know, you will have heard that before. Yes, it's not, it is. I think I think some, suddenly Verizon, yes, having, I think with a few people, that, that creative process and being so involved in that dynamic and not having a clue about, the you know, who's dealing with the money and then one day going, oh, my God, someone just sort wake of... Up. <laughs> we gave, we gave, um, you know, we gave um, permission 
for people to handle our money that we shouldn't have done, you know. Um, you're so young and stupid. <laughs> All you want to do is be in a band. Young and stupid. And, <laughs> and I think I think hopefully the youth of today are a bit more savvy, you know, a bit more clued, clued up. But it's tricky because I think with, you know, most people will say that when you're in a band, you have to have a bit of, I suppose, naivety and arrogance and sort of like, <laughs> you know, and, and you can't not, you know, you Otherwise either have... you don't make the music you make. So it comes hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But, you, you know, know, we were savvy as well because, you know, we wouldn't have made that first record, the, the compilation of Singles Bar, had it not been, you know, for me saying, come on, Paul, let's phone up some some studios now and tell them that, you know, we've done this, that and the other and it's worth taking us on just for points and, you know, let's see if they've got some downtime. And, you know, the first studio I called... Um, said, yeah, come and meet us. And and um, a producer called Graham Holdaway said, oh, I like you, guy. Like like the music. Come and record here. And that's where we did all recording. And, and uh, you know, that's when we had our the Music Week catalogue, you know, um, directory of studios and things like that. The internet didn't exist yet. And um, it was just, yeah, you had to have creative savvy. Otherwise, you know, you're stuffed. Yes. So look, then sort of fast forward in a decade or two to 2016, you started to perform the songs again acoustically as Salad Undressed. Mm. Um, So did that feel like, um, did it take you that amount of time before you wanted to revisit those songs and start to perform them again? Um, It's not as simple as that, really. I had been in another band um, called Cowboy Racer, which I knocked on the head uh, exactly seven years ago um, because I had a son um, and I wasn't paying him any attention. I was neglecting him. I was like, I had an au pair. He was in nursery four days a week and I wasn't even working that hard. I was like, and I was just working on the band and I was thinking, what am I doing? I knocked it on the head and spent time being a mother. And that's the best decision I ever made. So that was it. Music was, you know, I'd, I'd done it. I'd been there, worn the T-shirt, as far as I was concerned. Mm. Um, I was a house, you know, I was, I was working on TV and everything, and then it was all fine. Not really, but, you know, I was pretending it was all fine. Um, and then Paul got made redundant from his job, and uh, he spent a year getting his songs together again and doing solo stuff, just him and his guitar, and um, he notched up a few gigs before I came to see him. And I came to see him just because I was supporting him. And he was really good. And he played a song called Relationship Dust, which was just, you know, uh, he, he'd come back to his poetry and his wit and his, uh, his edgy mel- melodiousness that was that, that with, with, um, um, turns that you just don't expect which we now call the kennedy corridor um and um afterwards we were just chatting and he had his guitar and he started just for the fun of it playing a song called name drops and our producer was happened to be there too because it was his night our producer from ice cream and um i started singing along to name drops and our producer said hey muscle memory because i i hadn't sung that song for i don't know how long and we started singing it and we're like hey this is fun and as a joke i said hey we should form the merry babes again (laughs) and that was that and paul said well why don't you come to some of the open nights that i do and and i'll do two songs and you do one song with me sing with me and the very first one i took a friend along for support because I was so nervous I couldn't open my eyes I couldn't sing in tune I didn't understand how to use the microphone anymore um, and I said afterwards well I'm never doing that again 
Um, but that's not how I work. <laughs> and we just carried doing a few open nights and we just thought, hey, the world is our oyster again. Why don't we actually take this seriously? Because I've been made redundant too and, you know, I had time. So it was just a – we actually really liked working together and we'd forgotten the chemistry that we had that we found when we started going out with each other in 1985 or something and started writing songs. The chemistry was still there after all those years, literally 30 years later. And yes. That you don't, uh, you don't dismiss, you know. Yeah, so that was that. We called ourselves the MBs, and then we changed that to Salad Undressed, and uh, we were very, very, very surprised at the interest. Actually, yes. Well, well, it's in, yeah, because it's quite interesting, because having, having formed certain theories, I mean, they're not completely watertight, by the way. I love your theories, go on. <laughs> there was a, well, the, the 30 year one was quite interesting, because there's been two books out this year on fanzines from the 80s, not the punk, not so much punk, but the 80s fanzines. And it's like, God, what, two in a year, that's a bit odd. And then it's like, I'm sure that for the last 29 years, most people who came across their old fanzines would have just chucked them in the bin or put them in the recycling. And suddenly it's it's like no 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 wait a minute they're really fantastic that let's publish a book and put them in a museum and it's suddenly that period of time you know things go from oh you've got to move on to wait a minute this is quite nice this is this is kind of a historic document you know we could be looking at this in a museum now and it's so it is an interesting one that you know sometimes that passing of time makes one reflect and look at things differently. We, we thought we would do exactly that and, and make a record of our demos uh, called Aeroplane Sadness and, and release it as a, as a heavyweight vinyl um, limited edition. Um, exactly that with, with an, a, a gatefold LP with photographs of us as t young babes trying to, um, you know, trying to um, f force our art onto the world. We, we were forced to be reckoned with and it's done really well that record you know it's it's a thing of beauty <laughs> it, when you look at it all you know the way it's been designed um we didn't design it we got a friend of ours to do it and yeah it's it's a museum piece i don't know if you're familiar with it you can find it on pledge music i will have to have a look because you've got this single out haven't you a single that came out yeah. this month in fact that the, yeah. the selfishness of love so is yeah. this a new new song brand new um, by Salad, the whole full band. Salad Undressed is now, you know, no more. That was our stepping stone, you know. Um, this is the first single uh, as Salad uh, since 1997, so the first in 21 years. Um, new song, so to speak. Um, as it so happens, Paul wrote uh, some of the lyrics 20 years ago um, because he hasn't stopped writing, you see. I did. But Paul never stopped writing songs. In fact, never stopped recording songs. He was writing and recording songs with Donald, um, Ross Skinner, who's the drummer in our band now and producer by Scream. Um, all those 20 years, he was writing and recording songs. So this was one of the songs that never really got a look in. And um, he revived it and I sort of adapted it and brought it up into the 21st century with him. And... Um, the band almost didn't record it because we'd kind of forgotten about it. We recorded six songs in the studio and this one just started taking over a life of its own. It was like 
it needed to get out there. It, it, it had this life force that we were not in control of at all. Um, and um, that's why we released this one. And I don't know if you've seen the video for it. I haven't. Oh, yes, I did. I did see it. And that was where, yes, because it, um, it was quite a production number, wasn't it, actually, with with you sort of changing positions. Yeah. That was a couple yeah. of... <laughs> Yes. But again, DIY, you know, nobody else involved apart from the band and my ex-husband. I know. And, and the great thing <laughs> is, there is kind of a good and bad thing. But now that we've got the access to sort of just that media through, you know, social media and sort of being able to make things and put them on YouTube, it means you can sort of bypass a huge amount of different people and different problems. And you can just go, well, that's good enough. <laughs> yeah, I don't see there's anything bad about it at all, because this is true art. Yes. There's nothing corporate about it. The way the bands are now, um, we, the fans, the music lovers are getting exactly what uh, the band has purposed for them. You know, um, that's not an English sentence, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Um, it, there is no middleman. Uh, and usually the middleman, you know, back then meant sort of money and uh, company stuff and whatever and decisions by management. But creatively, there's also no middleman because they try to also have creative input, you know, the, the managers. And I wish they wouldn't. Mm. So it's all gone too now. So you, it's the pure, raw stuff you're getting from the artists. It's a revolution. It's brilliant. It is good. So that means that, um, well, I'm not sure if it completely means this, but does this, mean, does this mean that 2019 will see a new album and some more dates by the band? Yeah, absolutely. We've got a pledged music campaign for the new album. The new album is going to be called The Salad Way. Um, and it will be, we're recording it at the moment in, in, in bits and pieces here and there. Um, we're not going into a studio for like, say, three weeks and record it in one bit. We're, um, we're all working and we, we certainly don't have the funds to do that. And that's why we're building up the funds now to, uh, in order to be able to go in here and there, left, right and center and just really do um, con uh, a concerted effort to make that record that will grow over a period of eight months you know a lot of the songs haven't been written yet um and um yeah it's called the salad way because whenever we write and whenever we rehearse and we change things and we go well that's all very nice but it's a bit dull isn't it we need to we need to do it like this and then we change a chord or we change a we change a rhythm or we change a word it's like that's it that's the salad way <laughs> and so that's why um yes it was, it was a working title but it has become the real deal the real deal because it's quite you know it's one of the, the, the nice things that's happening in society is that because it's a bit tricky at times, isn't it? But, the, you know, there's bands like Biss have, have sort of, I think, are recording a new album. And the member of Mickey from Lush, Mickey from Lush has also got a new yeah. kind of outfit Sleeper. that she's playing. And, yes, and Sleeper and I think Echo Belly have been doing things. And I like you said, that whole sort of lineup for Shine. And yeah. I think it's fantastic that a lot of people not only are it sort of enjoying playing those songs again, but actually really want to record new material. So it isn't just going to be, we're just going to live in the past. We do really want to create something New, yeah, sort of... none of us none of us want to be um a nostalgia act because 10 years ago this is what i was talking to you before the interview started 10 years ago um it was a whole 80s revival you know 10 15 years ago but that was definitely a revival that was definitely nostalgia 
thing. You know, there's big festivals with all, you know, four four songs from, you know, Kim Wilde, and then four songs from... Yes, I know, yes. ...or whatever. And um, we're not doing that. Yes, you've got the festivals like Shine On, but each band that played there had at least two or three new songs in their set, you know? Yes. Yeah. Which is great. And just lastly, what would you say to your, you know, like an 18-year-old self who was kind of started out in this kind of interesting and uh, rather adventurous world that is kind of rock and roll? <laughs> uh, just say no. <laughs> <laughs> to everything, you know. Say no to drugs. Say no to people trying to, um, you know, um, tell you you're rubbish. Uh, don't listen to them. Um, yeah, just say yes to yourself. Say yes to you, you, you know, you know, believe in yourself basically because no one else is going to believe in you. If you don't believe in yourself, who else is? Yes, this is all very true, actually. I think that's the great thing with age and wisdom. I mean, you can't be, <laughs> you can't be 18 anymore with that kind of sense of enthusiastic naivety, but, um, the you energy. Can... <laughs> you know, I did yesterday. I spent the whole day in bed. I had a duvet day because um, I had been, uh, you know, it had been my son's birthday, 11th birthday the day before, and I'd been preparing for that, and I'd been playing the salad dates and editing the video, and November was just a very, very, very busy month. So yesterday I just couldn't get out of bed. Didn't. <laughs> just, that's, you know, didn't, don't have the energy. And you're much kinder to yourself when you're older. You go, you know, I can't cope, so yeah. I'm not going to. Yes, this is good. I know. This is. I think this is called wisdom. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but look, this is fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And I will tell you when I put it out. I um, hope you've got enough. I have know. got. I have got lots there. So this is fantastic, and I'm just so pleased to a get the interview, and that um, you're sort of you know the the creative spark is still sort of absolutely. It's an essential. It's 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 it, blimey, you know. It's it's a lot. We're very blessed and very and everybody says the same. And it's boring to hear it, but it's um, it's a lifeline, it really is. Yes. And and what's a lifeline is also the the relationship that you then develop with with your supporters, your fans. You know, I don't call them supporters. We're not a football club. With the people who who continue to appreciate what you do and giving them happiness, it is such a such a lovely thing. Yes, I know, and I'm sure when you see both you know the original fans and probably some of their younger members of the audience, you probably think, oh, this is this is what it's kind of all about. Yep. Yeah, the last gig we did in London was was chaos. It was brilliant. It was a riot. I don't remember gigs like that in the 90s. Honestly, I don't. I, I can't remember a gig that furious ever. It was brilliant. Yes. And they're all of our age, you know. <laughs> they, they probably felt it for the next day or two. Yeah, that's <laughs> we did. We were on our second date in Oxford and we we're like, blimey, it feels like we've been on tour for two weeks. <laughs> Oh, that's classic. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much. Thank you, David. And um, yes, I'll keep in touch and uh, have a great day and uh, a great winter. Take take care. You too. Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.